Thanks, Robert. Pray with me. Father, we, uh, we need you. We, we ask for your intervention in our time here this morning. The, the words that we consider here, uh, the words of uh, penned by the, the Apostle John, are weighty. Um, and we want to see Jesus more clearly through them. So I pray that your spirit would, would do that for us, would open our eyes to see, open our hearts and our minds to, to understand whatever it is that you have us to, to understand from this passage this morning. And I pray that you'll honor and glorify yourself, honor and glorify Jesus through it. We ask this in his name. Amen. All right, so we are uh, we're continuing a, a series in John that we began a long, long time ago um, and uh, have reached a point of transition. Actually, we, we reached the point of transition last Sunday, uh, transitioning from chapter 17 into chapter 18. Um, I, I think it was five, which the end chapters that are included only in, in John's gospel that tell us so when Jesus was there with much rich detail about what went on in that upper room when Jesus was there with his disciples. And now we've made this transition and they've left the upper room. And last Sunday, uh, Pastor Chris took us through the first 11 verses of chapter 18. Jesus in the garden and then the, the cohort of Romans and the, and the temple guards coming to, to arrest him, Judas betraying him. And we saw in that Jesus displaying his, his deity and his sovereignty and his, and his power, even in the midst of this time where it looks like he's uh, beginning to experience defeat. We saw all of those things about Jesus. And now, uh, well, at the, at the very end of that, uh, of that passage, Jesus said this to Peter. Peter had tried to defend Jesus, took out a sword, took off the ear of one of, uh, one of the servants, and Jesus uh, said this to Peter. Put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? And this cup language, as Chris took us through it, it's, it's this cup of the, of the wrath of God being poured out, not on those that deserve it, but on Jesus as he took the wrath of God upon himself. And I would submit that what we're going to see from this point forward, starting in verse 12, all the way through the end of chapter 18, and then all the way through chapter 19, as we make our way through that chapter, those are the, the details of what it meant for Jesus to drink this cup that the Father had given to him. I, I wanted to before we begin, as, as Robert pointed out, this is a rather lengthy passage, 21 verses in all. Um, I think if we only spend three or four verses, uh, minutes per verse, we shouldn't be here. To, well, you can do the math. We'll try to make it a little quicker than that. But uh, I wanted to make a couple of comments, uh, observations, just about the structure. I think the structure indicates John's intent, what he is intending to do as he, as he, as he relates this part of the story. If you're familiar with the Synoptic Gospels, with, with Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they tell the story differently. We've seen that uh, all through John, so we shouldn't be surprised by that. But in this case, it's different in that in the other Gospels, they, they present Peter's denials as a block. When he, does, when he denies Jesus three times, they're in a block of text by, uh, together. And John, I believe, intentionally breaks this up. I don't know if you noticed as, 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 you, we were, as you were reading and as Robert was reading that there's, uh, there's, there's a, 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 an interposition, if you will, a, a juxtaposition, an interspersal, I'm just making words up now, um, of these, of Jesus and his trial and Peter and his denial. I'm calling this message denial and trial. I think those are the two things at play here. And these two things are interconnected and they're also interspersed, and I think, I think John's doing that on purpose. I think the primary reason he's doing it is because he wants us to very clearly see some contrasts, some contrasts between Jesus and what he is experiencing and Peter and what's happening with him. 
And I th also, he, in addition to this contrast, we see um, that's one literary device that, that John uses. The other that he uses quite prevalently in this passage is irony. That in my, in my other life, I uh, primarily teach English. I'm a special ed teacher, but my primary job is to te teach English. And so we tell our students that there are, is, there are three kinds of irony. There's, there's um, verbal irony, which is sarcasm. We're not going to see a lot of sarcasm here uh, in our passage. But the other two are situational irony, where things happen that are unexpected, and dramatic irony, where we as the reader know things that the characters in the story don't know. I think we're going to see a lot of those kinds of irony, the dramatic irony in particular. So, so, so let's get started. As we said, at the end of uh, this last passage in chapter, uh, in verse 11, Jesus tells Peter that he has a cup that he is to drink, and it's a cup that was given to him by the Father. And I think we see the, the overflow of that just at the very beginning of our passage. Again, starting in, chap uh, in chapter 18, verse 12, says this, John writes, So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. I'm calling this section, The Savior Submits. And at first glance, you might think that it's the same, this, this Roman cohort and these, and these temple, um, temple guards that have come. But that's not what I mean when I say that the Savior is submitting. I'm saying that when the Savior submits, he's submitting to his Father. It's to the Father that Jesus is submitting. He's not submitting to those people that have come to arrest him, to these people who have come to, to bind him. His submission's not to them. In fact, he doesn't have to submit to them. If he chose not to, he would not have to submit to them. Uh, there's a parallel passage in... Uh, in Matthew, that's again, just uh, as Jesus is being arrested, uh, Matthew writes this, They came up and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. And behold, one of those who were there with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Now, we, we know Matthew doesn't tell us who it is. John tells us that was, that was Peter. Then Jesus said to him, said to Peter, Put your sword back into its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you not think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? So to whom is it that Jesus is submitting here? He's not submitting to these people. He's submitting to the Father. The Savior submits not to these Roman officials and officers, not the soldiers and the temple guard. He is submitting to his Father. John goes on. He says, first, they led him to Annas, who was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. Now, this is, this is a little different, too. In uh, the other gospel accounts, we don't hear about this interview with Annas. We go right to the interview with, with Caiaphas and, and the council. Uh, it's, it's, it's something that John includes that the other gospel writers don't include. So I guess it begs the question, who is this, who is this Annas guy? Um, one of the uh, uh, scholars and commentators I read um, in preparation for this, a guy named Gary Burge, gives us some help with this. He, says, he tells us that Annas is well known, even though he appears second to Caiaphas in the New Testament. Josephus, a uh, uh, Jewish historian, Josephus indicates that he was appointed in A.D. 6, but was removed from office in A.D. 15 by Valerius Gratus, Pilate's predecessor. He continued to, join, to enjoy enormous influence, however, and considerable popular support since Judaism resented how the Romans controlled the high priesthood. Five of Annas' sons became high priests, as well as his son-in-law, Caiaphas. Thus, Annas enjoyed great power and was the patriarch of an influential priestly family, well known for its wealth power, and greed. So that's this fellow to whom Jesus is taken first, according to John's account. It's, uh, it's, it's, it's different, as we said, from the way we see it in the other Gospels, but it's something that John wants us to know, something he wants us to include. And I think he's, he's doing this because he wants to, to show us 
again, these contrasts between what happens with Peter and what happens with Jesus. We're going to hear more about Annas in, in a little bit, so we'll leave him for just a moment. Um, there's a parenthetical statement that John makes that we need to consider in verse 14. He says, it was Caiaphas to advise the Jews that's back to something that occurred back in chapter 11. For those of us who have been in John, that was a long time ago. We studied chapter 11. So let me, let me, let me remind you of what this was. Um, Jesus had gone to Bethany. He had his, his friend Lazarus had died, and Jesus had gone, ministered to his two sisters, and then raised Lazarus from the dead. This is all in chapter 11. Uh, you can review that uh, on your own, but let me pick it up in verse 47. Um, there were people there from all around the, the area, people from Jerusalem. Some of them, it says, believed because of what Jesus had done, but others felt it necessary to go to the Pharisees and in effect rat him out for what he had done. And this is what transpired after that. This is picking up in verse 47 of John 11. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord. But being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who were scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. It's an amazing story, this, 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 this high priest who had no interest in Jesus whatsoever, but because of his position, God inspired him to prophesy that this one this Jesus would be one who would, who would die for the people, who would be their Savior. That's why I'm calling this section, The Savior Submits. And John wants to remind us of that in this moment, that Caiaphas, who, who had told the Jews, who told the Jewish leaders who, what Jesus was going to do, that it was expedient, that it was good for them, he was prophesying exactly what was going to happen, that Jesus would, in fact, give himself the people. He would be the one who would die for the people. So that's our first little scene, the Savior submitting not to the people, but to His Father and this reminder of what He was going to do. Then we pick it up in verse 15. There's a, there's a shift in scene. Um, Jesus has been taken to Annas, and then we're told this in verse 15, Simon Peter followed Jesus. I don't know how many times I read that before I stopped on those four words. Because there's irony there. Simon Peter followed Jesus. Yes, indeed he did. For three years he followed Jesus. He was one of his closest followers. He was one of his inner circle. Oh, yes, indeed. Simon Peter followed Jesus. I'm calling this section, a follower falls away. It goes all the way back to the beginning of the story, all the way back to, to chapter 1, picking it up in verse 35. The next day, John, John the Baptist, was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard of them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come, you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. So for the very beginning of Jesus' earthly ministry, from the very outset, yes, Simon Peter followed Jesus. 
makes me wonder, I, I guess, do we, do we need to give credit where credit is due to Peter? At this point, all the other disciples, well, except for one, as we'll see, all the other disciples have scattered. So at least Peter's following him to this point, hasn't yet fallen away. And, and there is another disciple here as well. So it begs the question, who is this guy? It says, Sam and Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Most scholars agree. I mean, there's varying opinions, you know, because scholars do that. But most scholars agree that this is, as, as John typically does, John referring to himself. Uh, John, typically when he refers to himself, doesn't, say, doesn't use his name. He refers to himself sort of in the third person. So it was probably John, probably John who was following. Um, this observation, this is um, a scholar named Andreas Kostenberger, who, who spent most of his adult life, I think, studying the Gospel of John and John's letters. Um, he writes this, The other disciple who secures Peter access to the courtyard of the high priest is probably the Apostle John, who's also the writer of this Gospel. This is suggested by the use of the designation other disciple with reference to the disciple Jesus loved in chapter 20, verses 1 through 9, especially 20, verse 2, the other disciple, the one Jesus loved. So, again, that's representative, I think, of most of the scholarship that, that this other disciple that went with Peter, who followed Jesus along with Peter, is, is John. Again, I don't think that's by mistake. I think John here is setting up another, maybe, maybe just a small, uh, a contrast within the contrast. Because as we'll see, Peter is going to deny, but we don't have any glimmer or evidence that, that John does. So there's a contrast there for you to, to consider. John says this, Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest, but Peter stood outside at the door. So the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. So somehow there was a connection here. We don't, we're not told what that connection is, but John, if it was in fact John, knew the high priest or knew someone in the high priest's household, and he was able to gain access not just to the outer courtyard, but the inner courtyard. And when he sees that Peter couldn't get in, he goes back out and brings Peter in as well. He speaks to the servant girl who's, who's there at the door, who's keeping watch, I guess, who's you know, kind of checking IDs and making sure people have access. And she lets Peter in as well. And at 17, the servant girl at the door said to Peter, You also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? And I think this word also also indicates, this word also also indicates, yeah, that, that uh, John was known not only to the high priest, but was known as a disciple of Jesus. I think that's what she's saying here. This man, this other disciple, he's a disciple of Jesus. Are, are you one of his disciples too? And Peter, in that moment, has a decision to make. He says, am I going to identify myself with Jesus? Am I going to stand shoulder to shoulder with John and say, yes, I'm with Jesus? It's, it's almost mind-boggling to me. I, I, this is the same Peter who moments ago in the garden drew a sword and cut off somebody's ear. This was a, a bold, brash, outspoken man. You know, he's on the mountain of transfiguration and he sees Moses and Elijah and Jesus and he says, you know, we ought to build some, we ought to build some tents here and we can all just stay here forever. Wouldn't that be great? You know, one of the gospels says he didn't know what he was saying at that moment, but still speaking his mind, whatever came to his mind, uh, maybe no filter. We all know people like that. This was, this was Peter. And it seems like if anyone in this moment, when asked this question, would have stood with Jesus. I mean, I mean, he even had John there with him to stand by him. The servant girl, you know, maybe the, the least threatening pe person in the, in the courtyard, says, you're not one of this disciples, one of this man's disciples. You're not like, you're not like John, are you? He says, I am not. I am not. 
three words, uh, actually two words in Greek. Simple reply, and a follower falls away. One who had been with Jesus day in, day out, following him for three years. And with three simple English words, falls away. And then John gives us a couple more details. And again, I don't think he's giving us these details by mistake or just, uh, I think they're here for a purpose. Look at verse 18. He says, Now the servants and the officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold and they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them, standing and warming himself. This is what I get from this. We know it's in the middle of the night. Jesus has gone to the garden. Now he's been taken to Annas' house. It's in the middle of the night. It's, it's dark outside. Obviously, it's, it's cold outside. And they build, they make this charcoal fire. I don't know if you've ever, you know, I think you all know what a charcoal fire looks like. Have you ever put charcoal in a grill and set it on fire? I think that's distinctive about a charcoal fire is that it can generate a great deal of heat but it doesn't generate a great deal of light. So you can get warm by it, but you can't see by it. So there's Peter feeling somewhat secure, standing near the fire, knowing it's not even lighting up his face. I submit to you that as we've seen throughout John's gospel, this darkness is telling us something about Peter and his heart in this moment. In this denial that we've seen here and in the others that follow, that Peter is probably experiencing his darkest moment, standing by this charcoal fire. So, we saw the Savior submit, and then a follower now is at least beginning to fall away. Now we see, as we transition back inside the house of Annas, what I'm calling the truth testifying. It says at the beginning of verse 19, the high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Now, and when he says the high priest here, we, it seems as if this, this term is used interchangeably between Caiaphas and Annas. Here it's still Annas. We know that because in verse 24, it tells us that Annas sent Jesus to Caiaphas. So this isn't Caiaphas here in verse 19. This is still Annas. Yeah, and it's interesting that in the other Gospels, we don't see this interview. And in John, we don't really get any information about what happened when Jesus was with Caiaphas. We know he gets sent there and then meets with Caiaphas and the, and the council, the Sanhedrin. John doesn't give us any details about that. He gives us details about this, this interview with Annas. It seems as though this is not part of the trial proper. When Jesus stands before the council, as recounted by the other Gospels, that's when he's actually on trial. Here he's in some sort of uh, informal preliminary hearing kind of deal, or maybe, it's his, maybe this is, would take the place of the interrogation by the police that, that comes before the trial, something like that. Annas is there, and he's asking Jesus questions. He wants to know about his disciples. He wants to know about what he's teaching to me, it seems like sort of a, a fishing expedition. Or he's trying, Annas is trying to gain some information. He's trying to get Jesus to maybe say something that will be self-incriminating, to reveal something that can be used later at his trial, something that can be held against him as evidence. So he wants to know about his disciples. He wants to know what he's teaching. And, of course, the... the the question that is begged here is, why are there no witnesses? And that would have been the normal way a trial would have taken place. This is, again, this seems like it's something that's pre-trial, but even in this case, there should have been witnesses here. Uh, again, Kostenberger comments this. He says, the high priest questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching, but first witnesses must be produced to establish an accused person's guilt. I mean, that's the way it would have been done. They brought some witnesses in to testify against Jesus, and then 
there might have been some questioning of Jesus himself. And I think that's the reason for the response that we see from Jesus. He says this, um, verses 20 and 21, Jesus answered him, I said, I've said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. I think that's, in effect, what Jesus is asking for. He's saying, you don't need me to tell you. What you should be doing is, is gathering some witnesses. Go find people who have heard what I've said, have been out in the open, taught openly, synagogues, temples, out on the, on the hillsides. I, I haven't said anything that's been in secret. So if you want to know what I've said, then, then call in witnesses to, to testify. I think, in effect, he's demanding a trial, saying, let's get, let's get past this, this sort of uh, preliminary hearing stage. If, you, if you're going to put me on trial, put me on trial. And then this, this uh, officer responds, says, after Jesus said these things, one of the officers standing by Jesus struck Jesus with his hand, saying, is that how you answer the high priest? This is, in a way, a, a foreshadowing of what is to come. You know, we know the rest of the story. We know that Jesus is going to be struck countless times over these next few hours. This is just the first of many blows that he will suffer. And in response to that, Jesus again asks for, for actual testimony. Jesus says, Jesus answered him, if what I said is wrong... Bear witness, testify about the wrong, but what I said is right. Why do you strike me? Uh, New Living Translation translates the verse this way. Jesus replied, if I said anything wrong, you must prove it. But if I'm speaking the truth, why are you beating me? That's why I call this section, the truth testifies. Jesus, speaking on his own behalf, is speaking the truth. Uh, it's interesting in this translation, it says, if, if I'm speaking the truth, as if he could do anything else. We know of Jesus that everything that he says is true. Every testimony that he produces is true. Of course, he's speaking the truth. He is the truth, John 14, 6. He is testifying out of his truthfulness, and he's asking for a trial. And then verse 24, Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. So apparently, Annas isn't getting what he wants out of this interview. He's not getting Jesus to, uh, in a sense, he, he acquiesces to Jesus' request. He said, okay, you want a trial? Caiaphas is the guy that does those. He's the, he's, he's the actual high priest right now. Let me send you to him. And that's where the trial will take place. It's possible. I don't, we don't really know, but it seems as if uh, a lot of scholars conjecture that, that Annas and Caiaphas probably live very close to each other, maybe even in the same compound. So it wasn't as if he had to travel a long distance. It might have been just next door that Jesus was sent when Annas sends him to Caiaphas. And then the scene shifts again. And again, this is unique to, to John. We've already seen Peter in one of his denials, and now we're going to see the other two here in these next couple of verses. Peter's still out there by the charcoal fire. Peter is standing and, and warming himself. And it says, so they said to him, again, begs the question, who, 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 are, who are they? I think it's likely that it's the, it's the servants and officers mentioned in verse 18. It says that the servants and the officers were the ones who, who built this charcoal fire. So they're all gathered around the fire warming themselves. It's, so it's these other officials. So the pressure has been ratcheted up just a little bit. It's not a servant girl standing at the door. Now it's the officers and the servants that are standing around the fire that are now inquiring of Jesus. He said to him, you also are not one of his disciples, are you? It's almost exactly the same question that the servant girl asked. You are not also one of his disciples. 
And it says that he denied it again with the same answer, I am not. And again, I had to stop there for just a minute. Because if you recall, in the first denial, he was asked, you're not one of his disciples, and he said, I am not. And now when he's asked again, he says again, I am not. And it, it reminded me of something. See, in the other Gospels, there's more variety in Peter's answers. You know, maybe a little more emotion, maybe even a little more vehemently. It says, even says that he cursed, that he, that he with an oath said, no, I am not one of his disciples. Here, it's, it's, it's very simple. And I, again, I think that's purposeful. The way Peter records it, it's purposeful. If you recall from last week that, G, uh, that, that Chris pointed out there were three I am's in the passage we considered last week. When Jesus said, who is it that you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said, I am he. And, and then they all fell down. This, this, this amazing uh, exhibition of his power, just the words, I am he, which are tied to his divinity, the I am, those words threw them back. And then he asked again, who are you looking for? And they said, we're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. And he said, I told you, I am he. Three times he says, I am. And here in our passage today, Peter says twice and implied a third time, I am not. We saw it in verse 17. We see it here in verse 25. And then again in verse 27, Peter again denied it. At that point, John doesn't tell us exactly what he said, but the implication is, and this, this huge contrast between Jesus and his power and his authority. Yes, I am. And John, no, and Peter and his complete lack of authority. It's not me. I am not. I am not. Another uh, observation from from Gary Burge, he, he writes this. By weaving Peter's denials among the various interrogations of Jesus, John makes a theological point, and then he cites another commentator named of Brown. He says, Brown aptly comments, John has constructed a dramatic contrast, wherein Jesus stands up to his questioners and denies nothing, while Peter cowers before his questioners and denies everything. A contrast between Jesus and Peter. And in verse 26, it says, One of the servants of the high priest, a, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, Did I not see you in the garden with him? Perhaps, perhaps this was a realization of, of Peter's greatest fear as he walked into this situation, that somebody would recognize him. Somebody would know who he was, make that connection. And, of course, we see Peter once again denies and at once a rooster crowed. At once a rooster crowed. John doesn't tell us this, but we ought to know that the rooster crowing is in direct fulfillment of what Jesus said was going to happen. Remember back in chapter 13, Jesus said, you're all going to fall away. You're all going to leave me. I'm, I'm going to die, and you're all going to be scattered. And, and Peter says, oh, no, no, oh, no, no, Jesus, not me, not me. I will go with you, and I will die with you. Jesus, I mean, I, I picture it with a, with, a, with a shake of the head. He says, I tell you the truth, Peter, that before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And in direct fulfillment of that prophecy, Peter denies. A disciple denies. And then the scene shifts yet once more, at least for our passage this morning. 
Now, told us at the end of uh, the, uh, the, the interview with Annas that Annas sent him to Caiaphas. Now he's with Caiaphas. We know nothing of what happened from John's account of what happened when he was there. But now we are seeing that Jesus is now being transferred once more. It says, then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. headquarters. It, was, it was early morning. So John skips the trial before Caiaphas in the council and takes us directly to the house of, of Pilate. That would have been governor at the time. So he's, they're taking him to the praetorium. The they here, I believe, is as it tells us at the beginning of Matthew chapter 27, all the chief priests and the elders of the people. That, Matthew tells us that they are the ones who accompanied Jesus, who escorted him to the house of the governor. The dialogue between Jesus and told, well, we're not told, but we can observe that Jesus is silent. It was striking to me. In verses 28 through 32, there is no mention of Jesus speaking. Jesus doesn't talk here. Uh, again, Matthew gives us some insight into this. This is from chapter 27 of Matthew, verses 12 through 14. It says, When Jesus was accused by the chief priests and the elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate said to him, Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he gave, them, he gave him no answer, not even to a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. Oh, this should come as a great surprise to us. Isaiah told us this was going to happen. Isaiah chapter 53, verse 7. He was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. So I'm calling this section the sacrifice is silent. So we don't see any dialogue between Jesus and Pilate. We don't see any dialogue between Jesus and the religious leaders. Jesus is silent. Verse 31. And Pilate, I got to tell you, this brief dialogue is absolutely dripping with irony. Let me just point out a few things. It says this, they themselves, talking about the religious leaders, the, the Jews, they themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled, so that they could eat the Passover. It's almost laughable. These men who have gathered to indict and to condemn and to execute the Son of God are concerned about their ceremonial uncleanness. Aren't they something? You know, we want to make sure we can eat the rest of the Passover meal. We don't, we don't want to get ourselves dirty. They are condemning the Son of God to death, but, but we don't want to get our, our hands dirty dirty. <laughs> How ironic. How ironic. They position themselves as so high and mighty and holy, and yet they are condemning the Holy One of God to death. And then Pilate asked them this question. So you know, they couldn't come in, so Pilate you know, condescends to go out to them. Pilate went outside to them and said, what accusation do you bring against this man? Who, who is he? What, what are you, what are you, what's, the, what's the issue? And then they answered him, if this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. There's an irony all over that. You know, first of all, just, just the very idea. We don't really have anything in the way of evidence to present to you, but just trust us. I mean, we, if, if, if he weren't guilty of something, we wouldn't be bringing him here. I mean, you should just, you know, take our word for it. When we're lying through our teeth, take our word for it. And then again, if this man were not doing evil, a man who had never done anything evil in his life, completely sinless from the moment of his birth to this moment in time, and they are doing the most evil thing ever conceived by human minds and hearts, condemning the Son of God to death, or at least seeking to condemn the Son of God to death. Such irony. Such irony. The evil accusing the sinless of evil. 
And then Pilate's response again. Pilate said to them, well, take him, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law then. If you don't have any evidence to present, then why don't you take care of it? Why are you trying to get me involved? And then they finally tipped their hands. The Jews said to him, it is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. And they finally come out with what it is that they're trying to accomplish. We, we, we've known it all along because they've been, plant, plot, they've been plotting his death now for, for several chapters, all the way back to chapter 11, for sure. And now it says, well, it's not lawful for us. We want to we dot every I and cross every T. We want to make sure we're adhering to the law. We want to do what's right. As we, the evil ones, condemn the Holy Son of God, the sinless Son of God, to death, we want to make, make sure we're doing it right. So ironic. And yet... And Hedron didn't have the authority to impose the death penalty. So they had to get the Romans to buy in. They had to get the Romans to do the dirty work for them because they were unable to do it. They could impose other penalties, but they could not, they couldn't execute anyone. And to me, this is the ultimate dramatic irony of our story in verse 32. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So even in this moment, as Jesus is on trial for his life, he is orchestrating all these events. He's in charge. Told us all the way back in chapter 3. That as Moses lifted up the serpent in the, in, the, in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Told us again in, in chapter 12, um, verses 31 through 33. Jesus said this, Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted from the earth, will draw people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death. He was going to die. Jesus had to die, but he was dying in such a way that he was going to be lifted up, lifted up on a, on a cruel Roman cross. So here he is, the sacrifice, the silent sacrifice, a, a willing sacrifice. He's completely in control, even up to and including the method of his execution. And I think it's also, also worth noting Chris pointed this out last week, that John says that what Jesus said being fulfilled is being held at the same level as any other prophetic word that is being fulfilled. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken. Not one of the Old Testament prophets, but that Jesus himself had spoken. We saw something similar in verse 9 when it said that Jesus would not lose any of those who were with him. That was also in fulfillment of the word that he had spoken. So we see this, this contrast, this juxtaposition, and all the irony that is involved in it with Jesus, who, as the Savior, submits to his Father, as, even as a, a follower is falling away. We see the truth speaking, testifying, even as a disciple denies. We see a willing sacrifice who stands before his accusers and is silent. So what are we to, what are we to take away from all this? I'm, I'm sure there's, there are dozens of things that we could take away. Let me just point out a couple. First of all, I want to point, about, point out what we can take away from, from Peter and his experience. I think we should take away maybe a couple of things from Peter. First, we should take away a caution. You know, if, if Peter could fall away, if Peter could deny his Lord, if Peter, who had spent three years sitting at Jesus' feet and, and following him all around and learning from him, if he could fall away, maybe, just maybe, we also might sometimes find ourselves in that dangerous position. We need to be resolved 
We need to be, be aware of what it is that we are all capable of in our flesh. But I think we should also take away encouragement. Encouragement that restoration is coming for Peter. Again, Gary Burge writes, Peter's triple denial will return in John's story. For in chapter 21, verses 15 through 17, Peter meets with Jesus in Galilee and is invited three times to affirm his love for him. So there's, there's hope for Peter and there's, there's hope for us. In those times when perhaps we have fallen away or those times that are coming when we'll be challenged to remain true, there's, there's hope for us. There's hope for us that Peter, that, that Jesus will meet us where we are just as he met Peter where he was. I'm, I'm encouraged by this. this. This is what Peter himself wrote in his first letter. This is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you've been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Peter, the triple denier was restored and was able to write those glorious words. That's an encouragement for us. But I think the other thing we should take away, and perhaps more importantly, is what we see in Jesus in this passage. What we see in Jesus, the, the Savior, the sacrifice, who willingly submits himself. I mean, that's the heart of the story, isn't it? The heart of the story isn't Peter and his failure, it's Jesus and what he is accomplishing and what he's going to accomplish as we look ahead into these next chapters. As I was doing my final preparation this week, it, it, it occurred to me, uh, there's another irony here for us situationally in that we're about a week away from Christmas and yet here we are in the, in the passion story. Here we are in considering Jesus in his, in his trial and in Peter's denial. And then as we move forward, we're going to see him in his, in his death. I'm going to get to that after Christmas, but still, that's, that's the part of the gospel where we are. And it just seems ironic to me. Shouldn't we be, you know, like in Luke 2 or something? You know, wouldn't that be a more appropriate place to be this time of year, the most wonderful time of the year? I mean, how, how holly jolly is our Christmas going to be if we're spending all our time thinking about Jesus and his suffering and his sacrifice? And then I thought about it. I don't know what, what, what your favorite thing about the Christmas season is. I have a lot of favorites, but one of the, my most favorite things is the, is the music. By last count, I have over 4,500 Christmas songs in my iTunes library. I, I, I just... This is true. I'm not making this up. Um, so I love, I love Christmas music, um, and, and I was thinking about it, and it occurred to me that some of our best Christmas songs lead us to where we are today. You know, not the holly jolly Christmas, not, you know, Santa Claus is coming to town, none of that stuff. But songs like this, I wonder as I wander out under the sky why Jesus our Savior did come for to die for poor ornery people like you and like I. I wonder, as I wander out under the sky, or this imagery from the holly and the ivy, the holly bears a berry as red as any blood. The holly bears a prickle as sharp as any thorn. The holly bears a bark as bitter as any gall. 
or this verse that I think for a long time was lost from what child is this, but it's, it's, it's made a comeback. Nails, spear shall pierce him through. The cross be born for me, for you. Hail, or this from, um, from We Three Kings, the the first king sings about the gold that he brings, and the second king sings about the frankincense, and then king number three sings this. Myrrh is mine, a bitter perfume, breathes a life of gathering gloom, sorrowing, sighing, bleeding, dying, sealed in the stone-cold tomb. You see, what this reminds us of is that, that without the passion, there really is no need for the incarnation. If Jesus wasn't going to come and offer himself as a sacrifice for our sins, then he didn't need to come at all. And there would be no Advent, there would be no Christmas, we wouldn't celebrate the incarnation because the incarnation would have been meaningless. So I think maybe that's why we're here now, to remind us the takeaway from leaving here this morning as we make our way out into another holly jolly Christmas season is that what we're really celebrating is the coming of the one who would offer himself as a sacrifice for our sins and the one who ultimately would this and season. This is the last verse of We Three Kings and I'll leave you with this. Glorious now, behold him arise, king and God and sacrifice. Alleluia, Alleluia, earth to heaven replies. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for Jesus. Without him, we would have no hope. So the hope that is intended to spring up in our hearts during this Christmas season isn't some sort of, you know, emotional high that we get from a, from a celebration of a season. It's a, Something that comes from the truth, that comes from Jesus and His coming, the truth of the gospel, that in Jesus we have hope, that our sins can be forgiven, that our, our relationship with you can be restored. That is what Christmas is all about. And part, of, part and parcel of that is His sacrifice. So we thank you. We thank you for Jesus. Pray this in his name. Amen.